0: Good evening to you all. This evening I'd like to offer a talk on the five spiritual faculties. So these are also called the controlling faculties or the five gems or the five jewels. You know, the Buddhist teachings are often presented in terms of these numbered qualities or described in ways that are very structured, that are very analytical. And this is part of his genius, of course, that he could take his own experience of enlightenment and turn it into a schema or a map a way of describing how to cultivate the heart-mind and move it in the direction of liberation. And he, he said, in many different ways, these things are important, they should be held in this kind of way. Mm, these things can be problematic, they should be regarded in this particular kind of way. Uh, this is how you should attend to things. This is what you should know about how the heart-mind functions, how it uh, develops and opens. So this teaching on the five spiritual faculties is one of those teachings where he points to five intrinsic qualities of the heart-mind that we all have and says that these five things are important. They're things that are already present within you and when you develop them further and deploy them in particular ways they can really power your spiritual practice and bring you to awakening. They empower the practice that you're doing to bring you to its goal. So these qualities as I I said are inherent they may be strong in us now, they may be relatively weak. Some of them w- may be much more developed and, than others, but we have them and we can strengthen them, we can consciously cultivate them, we can balance them in relationship to each other and use them or deploy them to very good effect. Now when a talk like this is given sometimes what happens for people listening to it is that the mind immediately starts going well, what's it mean? What do I have to do? What do I need to do with this information? Why are they giving me this information? So this information is being offered mostly in terms of context but also uh, in terms of a framework that might be useful to you to consider your own assessment of which of these as a baseline are strong within you and which ones are less developed. So at the end of this talk, it might be possible for you, for instance, to do a kind of baseline bar graph (laughs) for each of these things and just kind of take a look at what you currently have well developed or strongly developed and which ones aren't as strong it's really interesting and useful information if you hold it in a wholesome and positive way and interestingly enough when students come in and do practice interviews with teachers In many cases, the teacher has this as a context or a framework in their own mind for listening to what you're saying. And it's very helpful, even though this may not be a foreground experience for the teacher, that the teacher is aware that these things are significant and can respond to you in a way that helps you strengthen what might be uh, weaker and can respond to you in a way that helps balance what might be currently a bit out of balance in relationship to its pair and I'll say more about that later so let me first name the five so the first of these is faith also known as sadha And the second of these is uh, effort slash energy, uh, also known as virya. The third of these is mindfulness, sati. The fourth is concentration, samadhi. And the fifth is wisdom, panya. So the first thing that you might notice right off the bat is that these are at least some of them are qualities that you hear a lot about so for instance you'll notice right away that if you know the structure of the eightfold path that some of these are elements of the eightfold path hmm which ones well let's see there's uh, effort wise effort. Does that sound familiar? And there's wise mindfulness and wise concentration. And this is very characteristic of the structure of the Buddhist teachings that you see certain particular qualities show up in a number of different places within his description of how things work together, and how to get on the upside of causality. So let's take a, a look at the first of these, which is faith. Faith, sadha. I find this a really interesting quality of mind. And I know for Western people, or many of us anyway, this word faith might not have much particular uh, resonance, or it might have particular associations with it that are not really uh, pleasant. So it may come to mind that this word faith has been associated with a kind of creedal, view, you know, like the Apostles' Creed or um, similar kinds of things where the idea is you, you just you believe, you know, it's like the Book of Mormon. Uh, the punchline in one of the songs was something like, I'm Mormon, I believe. And this was coming up in, in uh, light of some things in the play that, you know, were are pointing to some of the limitations of blind faith. But we're not talking about blind faith when we talk about sadha. That is not a thing in Buddhism. And in fact, it's discouraged because of the emphasis the whole tradition has on the importance of investigation and verification of truth claims. So what does it mean to say that the beginning of this list of five spiritual faculties has faith as the lead horse? What? Why is this important? So you could say faith is, I think the Latin is sin qua non. Any Latin scholars here? Former Latin scholars? non. Okay thank you. (laughs) Which means, without this, nothing. If this isn't here, there's nada. So, Bhante G says that at a minimum you need a willing suspension of disbelief. Well, disbelief in relationship to what? You need need to have at least a tentative extension of possibility to doing this practice having value and that you have the potential you have the possibility of being able to do the practice so there needs to be some kind of trust in the path of practice and in yourself as someone who's capable of doing that And this is reflected in confidence to explore and commit to the exploration and development of this path. So if there was no faith, there would be no practice and no fruits of practice. I mean, why would you do something that you had absolutely no confidence in? There'd be no motivation for the expenditure of energy. So without faith there's no effort. This means that you need to believe at least somewhat in yourself or you won't be able to sustain effort. And that means that it can be very skillful to actually reflect in ways that can strengthen this particular self-belief if it's lacking. So, working with the heart-mind, in a, a holistic way, can often be very skillful in terms of getting the body-mind system set up and willing to commit to, to practice. So some of the things that can be done in relationship to this might be reflecting on your own wholesome qualities and your own skillful or wholesome deeds. Many Western students, when they're given this instruction, which is a not uncommon instruction to be given by an Eastern monastic teacher, just go, Oh, I don't want to do that. Which is kind of an indication right there, right? Right? that the system is kind of recoiling from it, uh, embracing its, its essential goodness. And yet the truth is, nobody would be here doing this kind of practice unless you had many, many wholesome characteristics and much wholesome karma. You don't just wander in off the road to spend a month at the end of your nose, Right? There's a lot else going on there (laughs) to be in such a place doing such a thing. So some of the other things that are often suggested as faith arousing would be, for instance, reflecting on the Buddha, on the Dharma, and on the Sangha. The amazing... uh, case that uh, such a heart-mind arose in a human being and then offered such a deep and transformative teaching which has survived 2600 years. How amazing is that? Things don't survive with vibrancy that long without having some basis of truth and resonance and you know from your own experience of practicing the Dharma or you wouldn't be here that it has value and it has made a difference and made shifts in your own life so your own Dharma trail and how your heart mind has benefited from this practice is another example of a reflection which can be faith producing or strengthening and then reflection on the sangha so sometimes when I think about the dharma and how the dharma has survived for 2600 years I'll think of how remarkable it is that human beings have carried this transmission from mind to mind for that length of time. That in every generation since the time of the Buddha, there have been people who have practiced the teachings to some level of mastery, so that they understand them from inside and have experienced themselves, their transformative power directly, that have explained it to other people in a way that they have practiced and opened themselves. And that that has happened for 2,600 years in an unbroken way. And I also reflect upon the truth that this has all been supported in good part by the lay communities in the countries in which Buddhism was originally practiced. So, thinking about the many Asian cultures which have supported the monks and the monasteries, who have, uh, lay people who have become monastics, to do the practice and to do the teaching and the support they've received from their own communities and other communities how amazing and that these communities themselves would open themselves to western truth seekers and let in this motley crew of hippies and fed them and taught them and all the rest of that, that's amazing. Here they come, oh, the Western youth with their long hair and their drugs and their freeways. But they didn't withhold the Dharma. Hmm. Amazing. So strong faith and reflections of the kind that I've just suggested can bring uplift to the mind and power to supporting effort. You could think of it as emotional fuel. So then we go to the second of the spiritual faculties which is effort. Effort. And the Pali word for this is virya and that's often translated as a particular kind of courageous effort which overcomes sloth and torpor. So one image that's given in, I think uh, the Vasunimaga, Maga to illustrate Virya uh, is that of a a strong man standing in a rushing stream and he's standing there in the stream and he's you know, helping other people cross over and encouraging them to come. So you get the idea, like, you know, okay, this person's there, they're like dealing with it, they're together, you know, they're not afraid even in a situation that's challenging and maybe dangerous. They're there. They're there, they're a rock. Viria. So that's kind of a male view, although I guess it could be a woman standing in the middle of the rushing stream. um, Probably saying, why didn't they build a bridge? (laughs) But But nevertheless. (coughs) So, motivation is obviously tied into effort. And it It doesn't take much explanation of this, because of course the stronger your motivation, the higher your motivation, the more important your motivation is to you, the more you embrace it, the more central it is to you, the more core it is to you. The stronger the motivation, the stronger the willingness to make effort to really put yourself into practice in a wholehearted way. right? Weak motivation easily deterred. Strong motivation. If I was going to come up with an image that illustrates Virya, I, I think I might make it a little bit more like a, a woman in labor. <laughs> you no, know, you know what's going on. You know what needs to be done. You know it, it's difficult. You know it's hard, maybe even pa- painful or very painful. But yeah, illustrative. You know that there's a a point to it, right? And the the end is very important to you. So in a certain kind of way in spiritual practice you're giving birth to your own highest version, evolved version. So in spiritual practice the energy that's aroused is directed to following the instructions and overcoming hindrances should they arise. So energy is not applied to making something happen next. (laughs) So this is an important kind of distinction. So the energy is related to wise attention to what is currently happening. So if we are persistent and wholehearted and skillful in learning and following the instructions, practice will open and bear fruit. But it won't open if we try to push the river and create something we think should be happening or that we've read about. Because unless the conditions are there to support that to arise, it's not going to happen. So... In practice our commitment needs to be unconditional which is different than demanding of immediate results. And this is particularly true in concentration practice where leaning in or pushing is generally not helpful and leads to strain and loss of balance. So, the effort itself needs to be balanced and not hindrance-driven. So there's a kind of yin and yang play here between receptivity and applied attention in working with the breath at the Anapanasati. spot. In a certain way, you could say the whole practice path is about finding wise effort. Because wise effort is never static. Right? It's always responsive to what's actually happening. So in that way you can see that the infusion of sati or mindfulness into how you're making effort is very important. because you're always taking the feedback of how you're trying and then what happens next. So there are a number of ways to think about effort but the bottom line is it should be correct, correctly directed <laughs> meaning conforming with uh, the instructions and responsive to the circumstances, skillfully made, meaning uh, wise attention is what's called for, balanced and wholehearted. So there's a whole talk on wise effort that could be done. And I'm guessing it may, (laughs) may be done a little bit later on in the retreat wise effort and what it looks like in relationship to concentration in particular. So, the third of the five spiritual faculties is mindfulness. And this is a key place of balance. Mindfulness is uh, a quality of mind that's always wholesome. It's always wholesome and you can never have too much of it. Unlike, say, concentration, which could be unwise uh, concentration, sati itself is intrinsically wholesome. And when I say sati is balancing I mean that it allows us to see practice imbalance when it occurs and correct the imbalance by adjusting how efforts being made so in this schema of the five spiritual faculties sati is actually the one in the middle that is regarded as balancing the other four And I mentioned in my talk the other night, that mindfulness is actually the platform for developing concentration. So we use mindfulness all the way through the process. If there's no mindfulness, there's no practice going on. So mindfulness continues in some form all the way through even the deepest levels of concentration. There's some form of mindful awareness there even if it becomes very, very, very subtle. It's still there, even in the immaterial jhanas. And I also mentioned in the last talk that one difference between vipassana and insight practice and concentration practice is that concentration in concentration practice investigation per se is relatively muted. It's not turned completely off, but it's uh, not a dominant feature. Instead, mindfulness is used to stay with the object and hold on to it and and know it uh, in a fairly exclusive kind of way. So the fourth of the spiritual faculties is concentration itself. which is very important in the fulfillment of mindfulness. So, the Pali word here is samadhi. And this samadhi can temporarily suppress the hindrances. This is a step on the Eightfold Path that comes before wise mindfulness, interestingly enough. Which is a a suggestion that, in order to really fully develop mindfulness, you need concentration. hmm, that's interesting, considering I just said, well, to really develop concentration, you need mindfulness, but you could think of it as they they mutually support each other, so. Concentration is sometimes described as stability of mind or unification of mind. And it's an interesting thing that a concentrated mind actually arises with a number of other wholesome factors. So what we call concentration is not just like a single factor, one single factor experience. And concentration is a word like faith that can have a number of different mistaken associations so one image you can have is somebody whose face is really tight and their body's really tight and they're all all like screwed up and they're bearing down and they're trying really hard to do something and you know the the nugget of result that comes from their strain is like disproportionate to the amount of contraction Or maybe you have the image of like a, a stern parent saying to a, a, a kid, Concentrate! Concentrate! Concentrate on your homework! Concentrate on your homework! There's no cartoons until you... Concentrate on your homework! Which, of course, makes homework all kinds of fun. So, we moderns have very fragmented Minds. We don't spend our days out in the rice paddies walking behind uh, uh, the oxen pulling the plow. So we spend our days with our digital devices and flitting from thing to thing, you know, kind of chasing the little momentary high we get from some bit of news or information or... uh, Uh, contact that we get via text. So with this digital-driven life that we have, we've created major concentration uh, challenges because there's what's called an attention penalty that we pay every time the mind moves from one object to another the level of concentration goes down (laughs) and maybe if you're with that object for a while it will go up a little bit but the more you're moving around the more of a penalty you're paying in terms of unification of mind concentration So for us to do this thing that we're asking ourselves to do here, which is to settle in on one thing, we're going against the stream of our conditioning, both our uh, evolutionary tendency to kind of always be like looking around, scanning the environment for, you know, what might be uh, good to eat or what we might need to worry about, or our more recent... Self inflicted pattern of becoming uh, completely enmeshed and engrossed with uh, the simulated world that exists on our screens. So there's habits of mind there that need to be overcome in order to develop concentration. But there's a very important piece with this, a very important point with it, which is, we can't, can't train the horse with the whip. So, if you know horses, they're like really kind of skittish and fearful animals, you know, it takes a long time to de, uh, for them to develop trust enough to take in the instructions to uh, be tamed. And we're a little like that. Our minds run all around here and there. But they need to be trained with kindness. So it's very important in doing this practice to proceed in a way that recognizes things like joy and happiness and contentment, the uplifting kind of quality of faith, the beauty and ease of letting go, which is part of renunciation, the beauty of the dharma, the self-respect that can arise when we reflect on our own wholesome qualities and deeds all of these things which seem like they might be kind of soft or peripheral supports are actually really important because they go right to the point of making the mind happy or happy enough to find contentment and ease in the middle of doing this process. To get the energies of the heart-mind engaged and willing. So this is part of your own wisdom of practice. That these practices are, are never done in just a mechanistic kind of way. That there always is a need for you to work with this question of willingness, faith, joy, trust, metta, compassion, patience, all these things that might seem like they're kind of soft things or soft skills but they're very much a part of the path and all of these are engagements with aspects of your being or perceptions that you have or may have that are already accessible to you can you find your own individual way to bring them in as a support So if you remember some of the instructions in the initial days of the retreat, in the morning reflections, I would say something like, you know, find a way to be happy in doing this. Can you see this as an opportunity to be able to let go of everything else? Because that's a whole different way of framing what's going on than I have to just be with my nose today, all day. (laughs) I I get to let go of everything else. Every worry, every life consideration, every distraction, every fragmentation of mind, every hindrance, every blind alley, every speculation, I get to let go of it all and just be here. So this is a real pointing to how you frame it and how you talk to yourself about these practices makes a huge difference to your subjective experience in doing them. And you can see one version of these is empowering and one version is disempowering. Right. One is, the, one is the rocky road of gotta, I guess. <laughs> and the other one is get to. So if you give yourself fully to the practice then when it catches and it catches in its own way and in its own time for everybody you start to directly experience some of the rewards that come with the opening of concentration. So this can include things like deep experiences of, of peace, of joy, of uh, tranquility beyond any relaxation you've ever had. Uh, Feelings of happiness and delight that aren't coming from any kind of external source but are just part of the mind's opening uh, in beauty through this process of cultivation of wise concentration. So many inner delights can start to happen. And as the Buddha says, a pleasant abiding arises. But we would have to say that just a pleasant abiding isn't the end point of this practice. Because what else is developed here is a tool which is fit to use. And the Buddha talks about this as having a mind that's pliant and wieldy and uh, able to be used. Well, what, what does that mean to have a concentrated mind? And to consider a concentrated mind as a tool, it means that when you turn to other practices, the mind is steady it's clear, it's non-distracted, and in its settledness, the perception is available at deeper and deeper levels of the mind. So you may have already noticed, perhaps in a sitting or two, even for a moment or two, that there may be a time where the breath just seems like really clear. It's like you can see the in-breath, you can see the out-breath. Or maybe if you're having a good moment, you can see like the beginning of the in-breath and then sensations in the middle and then the out-breath. Or maybe you don't notice it so much in the sitting, but maybe you've had the experience of, you know, eating and the mind is pretty collected and all of a sudden it's like, just really there with what's happening, every sensation, every smell, every taste, every touch. That sense of having a, an experience that's very magnified in that kind of way is a concentration effect. Mindfulness is there too, obviously. Mindfulness allows us to know the experience and supports the concentration. But it's a concentration effect. So now imagine what it's like if you have a concentrated, wieldy mind and then you turn it to insight meditation practice. Where instead of the mind wandering off, being distracted, and a lot of hindrances arising, the hindrances are largely largely subdued, and the mind doesn't wander. At least not like it usually does. mind doesn't wander. And anything, what arises is known in real time as it is. And you have the capacity to direct attention to a chosen object and remain with it, without losing that object or being displaced from it. That would be an example of a tool fit for use. So whether you take the concentration to do insight practice or whether you use it for another practice, meta-practice or uh, reflection on emptiness, any number of things that you can do with it, you've got some power there, you've got some stability and power of mind. So whether it's seeing the three characteristics and dependent origination or whether it's cultivating metta, you've got some power there. You've got some meditation wattage of a non-agitating variety. So let's turn to the last of these, which is Wisdom. And Wisdom is really the fruit of well-deployed mindfulness and concentration. So you could say in a certain way, when mindfulness and concentration have been uh, utilized in a skillful way, Wisdom is supported and strengthened. And if you remember the schema of the Buddhist teachings, you probably remember that it's wisdom that cures delusion. It's wisdom that cures avijja, this active wrong knowing or misknowing of the nature of things that the Buddha says is at the root of our discretionary human suffering. So he says, it's not knowing how things really are and actually misunderstanding how things work that causes our suffering. So then what would be the cause of misunderstanding and its suffering? It would be understanding things as they are, as they actually are. So for those of you who know something about the Buddha's practice path, you, you might remember the story that when he first left home on his journey to awakening, he in fact studied with two different concentration masters. So he studied two different systems for the development of very deep concentration and he became a master in each of these and in fact when he uh, developed the practice, practices to their endpoints, he was so skilled at it that the, when he said he was going to leave, the master of each of these schools said, oh, "No, no, no! Don't leave. You can stay here and you can teach." But the Buddha looked at his own heart mind. And he he realized that even after mastering these concentration practices to a very deep level he actually hadn't come to the end of suffering. So he realized he had to keep going and try something else. Now, to me that's a remarkable act of intellectual honesty how would you like to have left the palace and everything there become a wanderer undertaken all this challenging arduous practice gotten mastery of it not once but not twice and then looked at your mind and even though there was very great degree of pleasure and power and attainment in what he'd done have to say, this ain't it. But, that's the bodhisattva, right? And this hallmark of truthfulness or or honesty is really one of his most beautiful qualities. And the courage of that. So there's an important pointing here, which is concentration alone doesn't liberate the mind. It's when concentration is combined with mindfulness and turned in the, to the specific examination of real-time experience that wisdom arises. So when the, the Buddha took his immensely concentrated mind on the Night of Enlightenment and turned it in the direction of seeing the chain of causality and how suffering arose and passed away, i.e. turned it in the direction of looking at process. He came to understand how suffering is constructed and how it can be deconstructed. So he needed that real-time information that was coming from insight practice. But he needed a mind that had the power of concentration to be able to see at the depth that would really disclose what led to what. Because obviously what the Buddha saw was a lot more than the casual observation, yeah, everything's impermanent. Well, yeah, everything's impermanent. We, we could all sign on for that, at least theoretically. But when you see it with depth, when you see it with uh, the magnification of concentration, you see everything really is impermanent really, really impermanent, and everything that is conditioned is arising conditionally. And it's in seeing dependent origination that the Buddha understood what was really important to attend to in order to actually cut the link of suffering. So he saw how suffering could be undone and how wise relationship with things could uproot the conditions for suffering to arise. And this is um, very much along the line of how the teachings of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and Dependent Origination were then expressed. It came out of this seeing of how it happens. It being suffering. It's arising and it's passing away. And then he kind of reverse engineered the whole thing and said, well, given this is how it comes about, that would mean if this condition wasn't there for it to come about, this condition meaning craving, unwise attention, unskillful relationship to Vedana, well, if that weren't like that, then this wouldn't arise. So if it were like this instead, if the mind were meeting experience like this instead, if the mind were regarding experience like this instead, then the follow-on consequence would be different. The follow-on consequence would be freedom of heart-mind, it would be liberation. So the Buddha's teachings liberate through wisdom. And the mind a- arrives at wisdom through the cultivation of wise view and the whole path. And wise concentration is an important part of the whole path. And under-practiced. So you've got a really unusual opportunity here to do the practicing of this particular quality. Like they say at the gym, you know, you're, you're building you some guns, you know, and get some guns going. Everybody's talking about their guns, that seems to be biceps. Or as uh, Bonte G puts it in a little more traditional form, he says, there's no concentration without wisdom And no wisdom without concentration. One who has both concentration and wisdom is close to emancipation. And that is indeed uh, a teaching from the Buddha. There is no concentration without wisdom. No wisdom without concentration. One who has both concentration and wisdom is close to emancipation. So I wish for you a joyful cultivation of this particular quality and uh, a joyful reflection upon your many wholesome qualities of heart and mind which can support the arising of faith which fuels the whole process and may the benefit of our practice be a cause and condition for our own awakening and that of all beings without exception